This is a Federal News Network podcast. The following program is produced and furnished in conjunction with Mark Amtower of Amtower and Company, which is entirely responsible for its content. This is Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Every week, author, speaker, consultant Mark Amtower gives you his take on what's going on in the world of federal marketing. Now, your host, Mark Amtower. Welcome to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with somebody that I've been anxious to speak with for quite some time. Uh, Joan Magretta is the author of a couple of bestsellers and one that's coming out shortly that I think will be a bestseller as well. Uh, her understanding Michael Porter has been on Amazon's bestseller in the strategy category for about eight years now. And I, I think that might be certainly a record in my mind. Uh, Joan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Mark. Pleasure to be with you. Fill in your background a little bit. What gives you the chops to be able to understand Michael to begin with? Okay, well, my business career has had several incarnations, and uh, all of them actually have been connected to Michael Porter and his work. Uh, I was a partner at Bain and Company, the strategy firm, where I helped put his ideas into practice. Then later, I became strategy editor of the Harvard Business Review, where I had the privilege, and it really was a privilege, of working closely with Porter on a number of major strategy articles. Still later, then, I wrote the book that you described, Understanding Michael Porter, and now the new book, the new, which is an illustrated book, called What is Strategy? So looking back on the last 20 years of my life, I seem to have been on some kind of mad mission to make Porter's work, which I think is so powerful and fundamental, uh, more accessible to a wider audience. Yeah, the accessibility factor is key. I've been fascinated with strategy as a business concept for a while, but I backed into it reading about military strategy. And I was reading about military strategy because so much military terminology shows up in marketing and business. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I read a book called uh, The Lords of Strategy, which I think you're familiar with. Yes. And it wraps up in and around Michael. So I got a couple of his books and I started diving in and I didn't dive very far before I got stuck. <laughs> and that's when I found you. So let's start here. Why do companies need a strategy? Good question. Good place to start. Uh, because strategy is a word that is used very loosely. You know, it really can mean uh, any kind of plan. It can just signify that something's important and you want to emphasize it. Uh, I would imagine uh, in the D.C. area where you are, uh, everyone must have a strategy for dealing with rush hour traffic. So, yeah. <laughs> so you know, strategy can mean just about anything to anybody. Uh, so for the next hour or so, as, we're, as we uh, visit together, let's enter Porter's world and let's use his definition of strategy, which is much more precise and much more rigorous. Uh, we're going to focus on strategy, competitive strategy for organizations. Uh, why do you need a strategy? Well, wherever there is competition, you need a strategy if you want to be successful. So we could start with a simple definition. Strategy is how you're going to achieve superior performance in the face of competition. If there's no competition, you don't need a strategy. But heaven help us for markets that lack competition. 
because those tend to be dead zones for things like innovation, progress, choice. So that's where we would start. Okay. So it doesn't exist without competition. So what is competition? What, what, what are the elements from the Porter point of view? Okay. You know, most people have a, a kind of model of competition they carry around in their heads. Um, and you even referred to your, you know, your readings of military strategy. When most people think of competition, they, they think about sports or they think about warfare. Uh, and for business competition, that's really too bad because business competition is quite different. Um, in sports, only one team can win. And you win by being the best at that particular game. Business competition is a lot more open-ended and it's a lot more creative. Uh, In most industries, there's no single one best way to compete. Why? Because different customers have different needs. So here's what happens when you compete to be the best. Rivals end up copying each other's products. They copy each other's best practices. They chase after the same customers. A rival adds a feature, so do you. In the strategy field, there's a name for this phenomenon. It's called competitive convergence. What that means is that over time, all offerings tend to look the same. So customers begin to choose on price alone. And then when that happens, everyone loses. Believing there's only one way to compete is the path to destructive zero-sum competition. Is there an alternative? Well, Porter offers us one, thank goodness. What I've just described is a race to the bottom. Uh, And you can avoid it because the way to be successful in business competition is to create your own game. And that's why I said business is a little more creative. You can choose to be different in ways that create unique value for the customers you choose to serve. And strategy is about making choices. You know, Walmart can be different from Target and both can be successful companies. So in positive sum competition, you focus on creating value, not on crushing your rivals. It's more like the performing arts where, you know, there can be many successful singers or successful comedians. Each one has a distinctive voice. And when they have a distinctive voice that customers value, they each create an audience. Okay. So there's three factors that uh, come into play. And I got these out of understanding Michael, and out of the new book, What is Strategy? And for those listening, What is Strategy is available on Amazon for pre-order right now um, and will be out shortly, hopefully by the time this airs, but we'll see. Some things are beyond our control. So talk about the right mindset. Okay. Well, so far in talking about the difference between Competing to be the best versus competing to be unique, that really is the essence of the right mindset. You, you really need to abandon, as, as comfortable as we are with all the sports metaphors, um, they're, they're very misleading when it comes to business strategy. And if you start with the wrong mindset, you're, you're very likely to end up in the wrong place. So try to think about not being the best, but being unique. When you're competing, you're really competing for profits. You're not competing to crush your rivals. And although I talk about profits here and we're talking about for-profit companies, uh, same basic principles apply for nonprofit organizations as well. Instead of profit, you're, you're, you're competing to create value by using the resources you have most effectively. So, so it's about using resources 
effectively. Okay. We're, we're going to take an early break because in the next segment, I want you to talk about the five forces, and I think we're going to need a, a little extra time on that one. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I shall return with Joan Magretta right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm here today with Joan Magretta, author of Understanding Michael Porter and the newly released What is Strategy? from uh, from Harvard. And What is Strategy? is a very different kind of book, and we're going to get into that a little later on in the show, and we'll explain why. But right now, uh, Joan, if you would, please, in the defining of competition, there's five forces that uh, that Mr. Porter outlines. What are they and how do they drive markets? Okay. This is probably Porter's most famous framework, the five forces. Porter's genius with this one was to explain how competition works to determine how profitable any company in an industry can be. Uh, He teaches you how to make a direct connection between what's happening out there in the competitive arena and your own costs and your prices. So the five forces explains the average profitability any industry can create. Uh, The first big insight here was that we tend to think too narrowly about competition as if it occurs only between today's direct competitors. You know, BMW and Audi are competing to sell you a car or Netflix and Disney are competing to sell you a streaming service. But competition is actually a much broader five-way tug of war over who gets to capture the value an industry creates. Why five-way? Beyond direct, the direct rivalry of competitors, there are four other forces as well. And each of the forces applies pressure on the industry's prices and its costs. And you can do the math then. That's what determines the industry's average profitability. So what are the forces? Okay. Customers, number one. That refers to end users and where relevant. It refers to the channels that are used to reach customers. Uh, When customers put pressure on prices or when they demand more features, but they don't want to pay more for them, they're competing with you over profits. Example, the rise of powerful retailers like Home Depot and Lowe's has put enormous pressure on the makers of home improvement products. So the more bargaining power customers and channels have, the less profitable the industry will be. So that's first force. Second force, suppliers. You know, these are the the people who provide all the inputs, including labor, that you need in order to compete. And when your suppliers are powerful, they use their negotiating leverage to charge higher prices or to demand more favorable terms. The more powerful suppliers are, the lower the industry's returns, because those suppliers are going to capture more of the value for themselves. And you'll see a theme here. With each of these forces, the more powerful the force the lower the profitability for the industry. Third force, substitutes. Substitutes are other ways of meeting the same needs your product meets. Uh, If you're an accountant, you compete with TurboTax. TurboTax is a substitute for traditional accounting. Ride sharing may become, is becoming a substitute for car ownership. What happens is when you have an effective substitute, it tends to put a ceiling on the prices that, that the industry can charge. So again, the greater the threat posed by substitutes, the lower the industry's returns are going to be. Next uh, uh, force is uh, the threat of new entrants. 
Uh, we all know about entry barriers. They protect an industry from new competitors and they enable high profitability. So you got to look at uh, when you're looking at a competitive arena, you got to ask how high are the hurdles a new entrant would have to jump over? Uh, what scale does it take to be competitive? Are entrenched brands a barrier? What about government regulations, policies, patents, subsidies? High entry barriers give companies within the industry greater freedom to raise prices. Uh, if the barriers are low, the other, on the other hand, it puts a limit on prices and profits. And finally, the fifth force is the direct rivalry from existing competitors. And you, you look across industries, you see uh, industries where competitors play different kind of games. In some, rivals go head to head. They compete directly. They match each other on everything. That's really competition to be the best. They compete on price. The more you have this kind of intense head to head rivalry, more prices will be competed down and the cost of competing actually driven up. So the worst form of profit eroding rivalry is to compete on the same things. The framework is absolutely fundamental to understanding how competition in any industry works. People uh, love to tell you their industry is different, but when you dig down uh, to this fundamental level, uh, you'll see that all of these forces are at work. Uh, and the five forces framework gives you an economic grounding in what's going on. It also tells you how things are changing. It shows you where you need to pay attention. Well, one of the things that we had discussed prior to uh, uh, being on the show uh, was you were afraid that uh, because you hadn't worked in the government arena, that these might not be uh, germane. But all of these are actually quite germane in our market. It is a regulated market selling to the government in a lot of ways, and, and the rules can be restrictive, and the pricing can be determined by the customer to an extent. But all of these truly come into play. The suppliers, the rivalry, certainly the rivalry among uh, competitors, substitutes are always coming in. Uh, the customers are always demanding more. The more intelligent they get, the more they want. And the threat of new entrants, you know, in a down economy, the government market looks like manna from heaven. Huh, right. It takes your tax money and Absolutely. gives it to government contractors. Absolutely. Absolutely. Those are good points. So let's talk about the elements of strategy. Let's start with uh, creating value. Yes. And, and actually, just uh, based on what you said, I wanted to make one more point about, sure. about the five forces, because five forces you know, lets you understand the landscape, the competitive arena, and it explains the average profitability for that industry. But the real question for strategy is, so how do you do better than the average? If, if, if a competitive strategy is about how you're going to have superior performance, how do you do that? Uh, and how does the five forces framework help you to do that? And I just want to give you kind of a quick example. From Don't the, take as long as you want. Okay, from the, from the heavy truck industry. Uh, this is a tough industry because most of the forces, four out of the five, really work against the industry having good returns. Uh, truck makers sell to big, powerful buyers who operate large fleets of trucks. So these customers are really price sensitive because the trucks represent the lion's share of their costs. So that's bad news for the industry. Rivalry is 
is often this head-to-head, -head, heavily based on price competition, because most trucks are built to regulated standards. So here's where you know regulation comes in. The products aren't that different, and therefore they look the same. And the industry is also capital intensive, uh, and it has cyclical downturns. And when that happens, price competition is more likely. So that's a, that's a negative for the industry. A third big negative is that suppliers are very powerful. There are large uh, independent suppliers of engines and drivetrain components, and they really exert a, a powerful force uh, in, on the industry, a negative, negative to the profitability of the industry. So with, with those strikes, three strikes against the industry, it's not surprising that the industry overall has very low average profitability. But there is one truck maker, a company called Packard, which makes uh, Kenilworth uh, trucks. Uh, they have about 20% of the North American market, and they have consistently been three times as profitable as the industry average. Now, how do they do it? Well, they don't compete by trying to be the best truck maker in the industry. What they've done is they've chosen a target customer, the individual owner-operator, whose truck is his home away from home. You know, these are the big, fancy, colorful trucks, lots of chrome, fancy sleeping cabins. Uh, and so in a price-sensitive, a very price-competitive industry driven by large trucking companies, here's one that has chosen small customers who are, in fact, willing to pay a 10% price premium for a slew of custom product features that make these trucks very luxurious. And they offer services that make the owner operators more successful. You know, they offer things like roadside assistance, for example. So you've got to keep your truck out, up and running and on the road. This is a real strategy. It's a distinctive positioning where the five forces are the weakest. And by definition, any successful company positions itself favorably in relation to the forces that matter most in its industry. You know, that's a place to, to begin to understand how competitive advantage translates into either higher prices or lower costs than your industry average and lets you do better than the industry as a whole. So basically segmenting the industry into identifiable chunks and going after those that are most germane to your price sensitivity is that right? Well, in this case, yes, yeah. that's what they've done. They found a, a customer that they can serve that takes them out of that horrible storm of the industry where, where, where right. suppliers are beating up on you, the customers are beating up on you. Yeah. Um, that, that's interesting because in, in the government market, there is no single market in the federal market. It represents literally all market segments. So transportation, finance, uh, you, you name it, the government's got it, right? Right. So it's the largest uh, landlord technically around because there's 38,000 or so occupied sites in the continental U.S. owned or rented or used by the U.S. government. I'm not sure if that includes post offices or not. Uh, I don't think it does. And as far as... Uh, your ability to segment by what people do, you can do that as well. So there's a lot of ways to niche down your particular audience and reduce the competition. Absolutely. Absolutely. 
And that's, you know, a lot of people tend to think that the goal of a, a business is just to get more customers, but really uh, it's choosing who you want to serve is, is really key to strat competitive strategy. Right. A buddy of mine, uh, Don Leiby, came up with the concept of lifetime customer lifetime value, to Lord knows, 30, 40 years ago. And that was from the direct marketing industry, the catalog industry in particular. And it was uh, an interesting concept because catalogs thrive on repeat business. So once you get wed to a particular catalog or used to be wed to a particular catalog, yes, yes. You, you were there for a while until you disappointed people. <laughs> right. So with the web, the catalogs, you know, all of the successful ones are online anyway, so they're still going after you. But there's so many choices now, it's a bit insane. But, um, well, let's go ahead and take a break, and then, then I want to get into that, that value creation concept. If you're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network, I'll be back with Joan Magretta, author of Understanding Michael Porter and What is Strategy, right after this. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here today with Joan Magretta. Think of Joan as a concordance to the work of Michael Porter. Uh, for those of you who have MBAs, you've undoubtedly run across Michael Porter's work in your graduate studies. If not, you were in the wrong school. Um, <laughs> but you know business strategy is a very complex subject michael is widely recognized i think universally recognized as a leader in business strategy and has been for quite some time but he's he's not easy to understand so thank god for joan um <laughs> which is why understanding Michael Porter stays on that bestseller list. So what is strategy and what is, how do you create value? Where's that play? Okay. Well, the, really the core of competitive advantage is creating value. And so strategy starts with a unique value proposition. It's the core element that defines the kind of value a company will create for its customers. And really you can think of it as the answer to three very simple questions. Which customers are you going to serve? Which needs are you going to meet? And at what relative price? And I'd like to just use uh, as an example here, uh, Walmart, because everybody knows Walmart. Um, and one of the things I love about Walmart is that they have built and sustained a competitive advantage that's lasted over half a century. So um, when Sam Walton opened his first Walmart in 1962, he really was just copying a business model that others had invented. Uh, the, it was the discount retailing. The idea was to offer lower prices than conventional department stores by slashing costs. You know, strip away the the, the store's physical amenities, uh, no, no carpeting, no chandeliers, uh, configure the stores to handle large numbers of shoppers efficiently, put fewer salespeople on the floor, let customers serve themselves. You do all those things well, and you could offer low prices and still make money. That was Walton's business model. His business model was the same as a whole lot of other people's business model, but his strategy was unique. And that's, uh, I think, an important distinction I'd like to make between business model and strategy. From the very start, Walton chose to serve a different group of customers in a different set of markets. 
I think most people are familiar with where he put his stores. That at, at the time in the 1960s, the 10 largest discounters, all of them gone today, focused on large metropolitan areas in cities like New York. Walton instead put his stores in small towns where everybody, you know, which everybody else was ignoring. The nearest city was probably a four hour drive and Walton bet that if his stores could match or beat the city prices, people would shop at home. Of course, he was right and the, uh, the rest of the story is, is history. So strat his strategy began with a unique value proposition that was different from his rivals. Uh, but the unique value proposition alone is not a competitive strategy. And this is where a lot of people, especially marketers, get in trouble. It's very easy to confuse marketing with strategy, and it's a very common mistake that companies make. It's intuitive to think of strategy in terms of value proposition, but the second core component of strategy is not intuitive at all. And here's what that is. A distinctive value proposition can become a meaningful strategy only when the best set of activities to deliver it is different from what rivals do. Think about that for a minute. If your activities aren't different, every competitor could simply meet those same needs and there'd be nothing unique about the positioning. In, in other words, marketing is important, but it's not enough. To support its everyday low prices, Walmart pursued efficiency and reduced costs through so many innovative practices in areas like purchasing, in logistics, in information management, all of them reinforced Walmart's uniqueness, its strategy. So for Walmart, everyday low prices wasn't just a nice marketing slogan. Walmart developed what Porter calls a tailored value chain to deliver what it promised. And Walmart has never stopped adding innovations that deepen and enhance the core of its strategy. So first point about uh, strategy, the core is a unique value proposition delivered by a tailored value chain. Okay. What are the trade-offs here? You set me up with that question. <laughs> uh, the role of trade-offs in strategy is critical, uh, really essential. Trade-offs are the strategic equivalent of a fork in the road. If you take one path, you can't simultaneously take the other. Trade-offs deepen your competitive advantage. And by now, you know what that means. It means enabling higher prices and or lower costs. And trade-offs also make strategies sustainable because they make strategies harder to copy. Trade-offs means saying no to some customers, means saying so, no to some products or services so that you can better deliver others. A trade-off, whether it's in the product itself or how you produce and sell it, means that you can't have it both ways because the choices are incompatible. You've got to choose, and if you don't choose, you will accept mediocre performance. Uh, my favorite here example here is another, it's, it's an old example. And I, the reason I like old examples is they show that strategies are sustainable uh, over the long haul. It, it also makes it easier because everyone knows the example I'm gonna talk about now is Ikea. Everybody's kind of familiar with Ikea. And if you stop and think for a minute, I'll bet you could tell me how Ikea's value chain is tailored to its value proposition. And further, how IKEA makes trade-off after trade-off in order to deliver on its good design at low price value proposition. IKEA's value chain has been radically different from others in its industry uh, for decades and decades. 
So in product design, IKEA designs its own products. Why? Well, it allows IKEA to make choices in styling and in the cost of everything it sells. It's the furniture's all designed to be modular, ready to assemble, uh, and those features produce huge cost savings. Uh, product variety. You don't go to, to into IKEA to buy uh, French provincial furniture. It's uh, the style range is relatively narrow. Uh, IKEA offers only a few choices of, of finishes and fabrics. Uh, and by limiting the breadth and customization of its line, it keeps costs down. Uh, think about how IKEA sources its products. Again, again, remember the five forces. IKEA is a Goliath and it's able to command favorable prices from its suppliers. Uh, they can source products in bulk from very efficient third-party manufacturers that produce on a global scale. Most familiar to everybody is the store layout and design. You walk into an IKEA, the classic IKEA, and you will spend several hours. You'll probably have a meal there. You might have your kids playing in the, uh, in the play area. The huge format stores allow furniture to be displayed in room-like settings. They put these very informative product hang tags on the products that uh, provide information about each piece. And setting up the stores these way, this way, IKEA avoids the cost of sales associates, making it easy for shoppers to help themselves. And I'll just highlight one, one more uh, the trade-off they make. Uh, it, it's how they handle delivery and assembly. Most uh, furniture makers uh, deliver your furniture usually two months after you've actually purchased it. Uh, with For IKEA, you walk out the store, you pick up your ready-to-assemble purchases in a flat pack, and you carry them out to your car. Uh, in a way, IKEA has outsourced delivery and assembly to its customers. And what you get in return for self-service is lower prices. Yeah and immediate delivery, actually. Uh, today, for those willing to pay extra, delivery is now available. So just think about all the trade-offs in that list of, of, of practices. And I could list dozens more. Uh, either you have salespeople on the floor or you don't. That's a trade-off. You, you, you don't have it both ways. Either you sell a wide range of styles or you stay narrow. Either you sell fully assembled furniture that has to be shipped or like the IKEA, you design it to be transported in flat packs and assembled in home by the customer. You know, too often companies believe that any growth is good growth, and that's why they, they don't like to make trade-offs. They think, I can, do, I can do everything. They have a hard time turning down a sale. So they erode their strategies by adding product lines, they add market segments, they add geographies, all things that might blur their uniqueness and especially their efficiency. When you try to offer something for everyone, you relax the trade-offs that underpin your strategy. All right. There's one more element I want you to touch on, and that's fit. Okay. So fit is important, uh, very important, uh, because you know it's, it should be clear by now that really good strategies depend on many choices, not just one. Think about all the things Walmart did or IKEA did. It's it's not not just one thing. It's and it's on many things and the connections among those things. Uh, great strategies are actually like complex systems where each thing you do amplifies the value of the other things you do. Again, either by lowering your cost or by producing unique value that enables higher prices. If you believe that competitive success can be explained by just one or a handful of things, 
then competition just becomes a race to acquire those things before your rivals do. Uh, we've seen entire industries rushing headlong to control the strategic resource. Uh, think about the current proliferation of streaming services, for example, and the wildly expensive race to control content. So how does fit amplify competitive advantage? Porter describes three different levels of fit across activities. Uh, the most basic fit is simple consistency. Here, each activity is aligned with the company's value proposition and each contributes to its dominant theme. A second type of fit occurs when activities complement or reinforce each other, when the value of one is raised by how you do another. Uh, example here, Home Depot, which helps budget conscious do-it-yourselfers accomplish home improvements. And to do that, it needs vast stores with a huge variety of products. They didn't have sales associates. Customers wouldn't know which products to choose or where to find them. So the staffing and the store design here complement each other. And uh, finally, the third type of fit is substitution. Here, when you perform one activity, it might make it possible to eliminate another. And we saw that with IKEA's store layout and product hang tags. They substitute for sales associates, so lower, lowering cost. So, you know, if you go back and think about IKEA, what explains its competitive ex success? It's not just one thing. It's not just big stores or big parking lots or, or nicely designed products. It's all of them. It's good strategies don't rely on just one thing. Good strategies depend on the connection among many things, on making interdependent choices. The whole matters more than any individual part. Okay. That's a good place to take a break. You're listening to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'll be back with Joan right after this. We're going to discuss the new book, What is Strategy and, uh, and How It Came to Be. It's a very different kind of book, so stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back to Amtower Off Center on the Federal News Network. I'm Mark Amtower. I'm here with Joan Magretta. I've been reading Joan's stuff for a couple of years now, and I, I was fortunate to find it because I couldn't read uh, uh, Michael Porter's original stuff and actually gain knowledge from it. So Joan, Joan helps me a lot, and the new book, Joan, helps me even more. So I, I want you to Tell us, this is a picture book. It looks like a giant kid's book, but it is, it's got a lot of information in it. So how, number one, how did it come to be? Uh, it's, it's kind of a funny story. I was approached by a young guy from Germany named Heinrich Zimmermann, who wanted me to write the text for an illustrated children's book about business. Uh, normally I would have just said no right away, but he sent along some illustrations including an action figure, Michael Porter, that I thought was terrific and very funny. So I forwarded the package to Professor Porter with a message something like, you won't believe this crazy idea, right? Uh, and I was then shocked because I got an email back from him in about three minutes saying, you've got to do this. <laughs> so... It didn't take long to figure out that business strategy was not a great topic for kids. It was the wrong answer to the question, which customers and which needs. But we felt anyway that we had something special, a really important, serious topic for grownups that could be presented in a format that was actually fun and really engaging 
And, uh, you know, we're aware now that there are a lot of people who get their information more visually than, than verbally. And this felt like it, it had potential. So I approached my publisher, Harvard Business Review Press. Oh, that was an interesting prospect. They hmm, hemming and hawing. It was a cool idea, cool illustrations. Um, yes, we know information is moving vis visual, but we don't do picture books. Uh, we don't do funny. So as I'm sure you can imagine, it took them a while uh, to get to yes. But once they realized what this book could be, they got really, really enthusiastic about it. Um, we then literally searched the world to find the perfect illustrator, Emil Holmwood. He's a New, New Zealander now living in Tokyo by way of London. He's smart, he's witty, he has the talent to make Porter's ideas pop to life on the page. Uh, so this is not a dull eat your spinach book. It's a fun, fast read, and it will teach you the essentials of strategy. Um, you know, I've been involved in my share of strategy meetings over the course of my career. And what you often see is people talking past each other. They lack a common framework. And I could see busy executives using this, what is, this book, What is Strategy, as a tool to get people on the same page, to get them engaged in really thinking about strategy. Yeah, it gives you all of the elements that that Michael talks about in his book that you talk about in understanding Michael Porter, but it, it puts them in really just a visually stunning way and the captions and conversations that go with it uh bring it to life. So the 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 illustration's one thing, but the ability to tie in all of the stories and the characters in the book representing each division of your typical company. So you got the CEO, the HR, the ops, the R&D, the, uh, the financial guy, and the marketing people, right? Right, right. And they're all animals. They're all animal characters. And it's interesting that they chose the animals for the particular jobs that they did. So, yeah, we know we spent a lot of time on that one. It was <laughs> casting this story. Uh, well, I, you know, I was for for the CFO. I was obviously reminded of Merrill Lynch. Uh, uh -huh. So, but I I was intrigued that marketing was a uh, is is that it's not a leopard. It's a cheetah. Cheetah. Okay. She's uh, a cheetah. Fast. She's fast. Yeah. Um, let me go back one second, though. Why did Heinrich approach you? Uh, he, I, he had read uh, uh, my books. Okay. Uh, two, two books. One, uh, the, a prior book to, to understanding Michael Porter was, was something called What Management Is. It was kind of a very um, an introduction to the art of general management. Uh, also a bestseller, by the way. Thank you. Yes. Um, and so uh, he he thought I might I might I might be the person for for the job. I, I um, thought it was a brilliant choice. And as I said, the the illustrator uh, Emil Holmwood is just extraordinary. His work is brilliant. So, um, I you you may have broken ground here in a way that will lead to other business books being presented in a an almost graphic novel format that would be terrific uh, that i hope that's the case well every executive i know claims to be busier than god um 
you know, keeping their, their uh, uh, businesses running, whatever. This book affords them the opportunity to access Michael Porter's theories and implement them in a way that hopefully will make sense for their business. That it's is a, our hope. That is you, our intention. <laughs> well, uh, I, I think you're going to succeed and I'm going to be uh, watching the, the Amazon list. And as soon as they let me, I will put in my review. Oh, thank uh, you. That would be, that's terrific. The challenge these days is getting the word out. Yeah. Hopefully Harvard's uh, PR machine will be uh, behind us. Joan, it's been wonderful having you. Well, Mark, thank you. I've enjoyed it. Uh, and I, I really appreciate your taking the time to, uh, to, to, to talk about the book. Um, my pleasure. I plan on talking about it some more uh, with other people. So, um, so thanks again. This is not my day job. I do advise people on marketing strategy. Uh, generally, that means not the same thing as this, but more along the lines of differentiation, content development, leveraging social platforms. Uh, um, and uh, I, I'll, I'll leave the harder stuff to uh, to Joan and Michael. Oh. Uh. <laughs> but you know that all of those, of course, are, need to be done. And that's what or maybe fit is really important uh, to uh, to be consistent with an overall positioning. And uh, so 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 these th- th- there's an important intersection here. And well, there was an important reason for including that marketing character in the book then. <laughs> so there you go. Joan, thank you so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening to Amtower Off Center. You've been listening to Amtower Off Center on Federal News Network. Tune in Mondays at noon or subscribe to this show on iTunes or Podcast One. Some people were made to follow the instructions. We were made to make our own. To always measure twice and never cut corners. Unless, of course, we've got a compound miter saw. Northern Tool and Equipment is a problem solver's paradise. There's nothing we can't find, fix, or figure out together. We're made for this. Start solving your projects today at northerntool.com. Your story, it lives in River City, where you can enjoy a metropolitan vibe and a small-town feel, where we set the standard for service and looking out for one another, where there's so much more than steak in our thriving food scene. Your story is the story of Omaha, told by those who live it and love it, whether that's helping you keep up with the Cornhuskers or creating the content you crave. And here in the Omaha World Herald is where it comes to life. Omaha World Herald, where your story lives.